Hello and welcome to our London History Podcast, where we share our love of London, its people, places and history. It's designed for you to learn things about London that most Londoners don't even know. I am your host, Hazel Baker, a qualified London tour guide and founder and CEO of londonguidedwalks.co.uk. Each episode is supported by show notes, transcripts, photos, further reading and sometimes videos on our website. Simply go to londonguidedwalks.co.uk forward slash podcast and click on the episodes that you fancy. If you enjoy what we do, you'll love our guided walks and private tours that we offer throughout the year. And thanks to all our lovely listeners, we are now in the top 1% of all podcasts listened to globally. It's spooky season and I was really tempted to do another London ghost story. However, you will have to satisfy yourself with the two I have previously done. The first of those is episode 28, a Georgian ghost story, all about the ghost of Cock Lane. And then the second one is episode 69, all about the Victorian actor William Terrace and why people, even now, see him. Today I want to tell you about Jack Shepard, celebrity thief. He lived in the beginning of the 18th century and was a robber, burglar and thief who reached celebrity status and became a household name. But, in order to understand the man, let's start at the very beginning. Jack Shepard was born on the 4th of March 1702 on White's Row, Spitalfields, East London. He was baptised round the corner at St Dunstan's Stepney. His father was a carpenter, but died when Jack was very young. By the time Jack was six, his mother had handed him over to the workhouse in Bishopsgate, and there at least he would have a roof over his head, food in his belly, and given an education. When old enough, Jack was apprenticed to a mist of wood, a cane chair maker in Witch Street, just east of Covent Garden and north of Oldwich. Witch Street, derived from the names of Via del Aldwich or Oldwich, was uh, much taken up by hostlers of sale of bedding and second-hand household goods. It was on the north side of Witch Street, near to its centre, was the entrance to New Inn, which in the day, well, it was a thoroughfare into the dismal region of Clare Market. It was in a narrow court of this street where the notorious Jack Shepherd served his apprenticeship to Mr Wood. But he wasn't notorious yet. The White Lion hostelry was on White Lion Passage and this was the venue of many of the events in the career of Jack Shepherd. It was here where he used nightly to meet in the tap room his professional friends and acquaintances. By the 19th century, when Shepherd's fame had a resurgence, it had ironically become a carpenter's shop. Witch Street, as it was in the days of Jack Shepherd, would have been similar to that of Holborn Hill, as described in Haunted London. The street curves quaint and cumbrous signboards creak on left and right. 
His first four years of the apprenticeship, I assume, were uneventful, as there is really nothing else to say. Um, He had begun to frequent a public house called the Black Lion in Drury Lane, not too far from Wych Street. And he became acquainted with a chap by the name of Jonathan Wilde, and also another fellow by the name of Joseph Blake, whose well-known alias was Blueskin. It's also at the Black Lion where it said he met with women of abandoned character who afterwards also became his coadjutors. His attention was more directed at one of them in particular, a young lady by the name of Elizabeth Lyon, also known as Edgeworth Bess, so named as that's where she was originally from. Remember those names as they will play an increasingly greater part in the story of our Jack. Jonathan Wilde, Joseph Blake, a.k.a. Blueskin, and Elizabeth Lyon, known as Edgeworth Bess. It is said that while connected with Edgeworth Bess, Jack frequently committed robberies at the various houses in which he was employed as a worksman. But it was his acquaintance with a woman called Maggot, where, after him being persuaded by her, committed his first robbery in the house of a Mr Baines, a peace broker. And a peace broker basically buys shreds uh, remnants of cloth in order to resell them. Now, Mr Baines's house was on White Horse Yard in Drury Lane, not far from where he lived and worked at his master's house. And what item did Jack first steal? Well, it was a piece of fustian, which is a thick, hard-wearing twilled cloth, um, often dyed in a a dark colour. And he took that fustian home and put it in his trunk. He then returned to Mr Bain's house via the cellar window and stole goods and money to the amount of £22, which he then took to Maggot. Jack didn't go home that night nor on the following day and his master, suspecting that he had made some bad connections, searched his trunk and found the stolen piece of fustian. This matter received no further attention and Jack remained in the family until he and his master quarrelled about the type of unsavoury company he was keeping and staying out all night. Jack quit the house in his final year of his apprenticeship and he now worked as a journeyman carpenter in Mayfair and that's an occupation which includes carpentry, joinery, roofing and also metalworking which would become useful in Jack's future events. Jack was employed to assist in repairing the houses of gentlemen in Mayfair and he also took the opportunity to take sums of money and quantities of plate, gold rings and also four suits of clothing. His accomplice in this had been Edgeworth Bess and not long after was apprehended and detained in the roundhouse of the parish of St Giles which was used to temporarily hold suspected criminals. Jack went to visit her, but the beadle refused to admit him, so Jack struck the beadle, broke down the door and carried Bess off. 
No doubt this exploit earned him a high level of street cred to his criminal companions. Thomas Shepard was Jack Shepard's brother and became as deep into the world of crime as Jack. Their first job together was the robbery of a public house in Southwark, close to the Mint, where they took some money and clothes. During the 18th century, the Mint in Southwark had a reputation of being a popular resort for coiners, thieves and the like, and it became the haunt of the now-notorious Jack Shepherd and his companion Jonathan Wilde, who is said to have kept his horses at the Duke's Head in Red Cross Street. Not long after the Shepherd brothers worked together with Edge Bess, they broke open Mrs Cook's linen drapery shop in Clare Market. They carried off goods to the value of £55. Within a fortnight, they broke into Mr Phillips' house in Drury Lane and stole some non-disclosed articles. Whilst attempting to sell some of the goods from Mrs Cook's linen drapery shop, Thomas was apprehended and committed to Newgate Prison. He was transported in July 1724. Jack and Bess were wanted accomplices with a ransom on their heads. James Sykes, also known as Helen Fury, was one of Shepherd's companions. He arranged with Shepherd to meet him at a public house in St Giles in the hope of receiving a reward for apprehending him. While they were drinking, Sykes sent for a constable who took Jack into custody and carried him before a magistrate. After a short examination, he was sent to St Giles' roundhouse, where he had previously broken Bess from. Jack broke through the roof of the roundhouse and made his escape into the night. Not long after his escape from St Giles' roundhouse, Shepherd and an associate by the name of Benson were crossing Leicester Fields, what is now Leicester Square. Benson attempted to relieve a gentleman of his pocket watch, The gentleman called out, A pickpocket! Shepherd was taken and lodged in St Anne's Roundhouse, Soho. Edgeworth Bess visited him, but was also then detained on suspicion of being one of Jack's accomplices. The following day they were carried before a magistrate where they were charged with felonies and committed to the new prison. They passed as husband and wife and were permitted to lodge together in a room called the Newgate Ward. Many of their friends came to visit, including Blueskin. A number of other visitors provided the couple with implements with which could assist their escape and Jack put his carpentry skills into practice. He removed their fetters with the use of a file. He then used the same file on the cell door. The dangerous descent to the yard was 25 feet. The only means of reaching the ground was by tying together blankets to create a rope. But that didn't reach the floor. Bess went first. She made herself lighter by removing unnecessary garments and throwing them over the wall before making her descent. Jack soon followed. They were out of the jail, but still within its walls. The only way out was up. The walls were 22 feet high, topped with an iron cheveau de fruit. They scaled this, and now being free, happily marched into town. 
It would be at this point, I think, where if I had been in a similar position, uh, moving to a new town would be a good idea. But no. Was it ego, their enjoyment of local celebrity, which drew them back into London? No doubt Jack's latest exploits increased his celebrity status. And he made even more criminal friends, a cooper by the name of Grace. And Lamb was an apprentice to a mathematical instrument maker. And Shepherd, Lamb and Blueskin worked together on a job of Lamb's master near St Clement's Church. Lamb was suspected, secured, convicted and sentenced to transportation. Shepherd needed to sell his recently acquired goods, which he had hid in a stable near the horse ferry Westminster, which he had hired. A chap by the name of Fields was hired to be their fence and to find a buyer for their goods. Instead, Fields stole the goods himself and then went to Jonathan Wilde to sell his information. Jonathan Wilde was not only a criminal but an informer too. Upon Wilde's intelligence, Blueskin was captured. Wilde was due to give evidence against Blueskin, but while Wilde was passing him in the bail dock before his trial, Blueskin pulled out a clasped penknife and cut Wilde's throat. The knife was blunt, and the wound, even though bad, didn't kill Wilde. It did, however, prevent him from giving evidence in Blueskin's case. While under sentence of death, Blueskin didn't show a concern in proportion to his situation. He was a hardened criminal. He was asked if he was advised to commit the violence on Wilde and he said, No, but that a sudden thought entered my mind. Had it been premeditated, I would have provided a knife which would have cut off his head at once. With no prospect of escaping, he took to drinking, which he continued to the day of his execution, and on the day it was noticed that he was totally intoxicated, even underneath the gallows. Joseph Blake, a.k.a. Blueskin, was executed at Tyburn on the 11th of November, 1723. Jack Shepherd had also been secured and sentenced to death, on Monday, 30th of August, 1724, a warrant was sent for his execution. Together with that and some other convicts, but Jack had a plan. In the jail of Newgate, there was a hatch within the lodge in which the jailers sat, which opened into a dark passage, from which there were a few steps leading to the hold containing the condemned cells. It was customary for the prisoners, on their friends coming to see them, to be conducted to this hatch. But any very close communication was prevented by the surveillance of the jailers and by large iron spikes which surmounted the gate. The visits of Edgeworth Bess to her paramour were not unattended with advantage to the latter, for while in conversation... She took the opportunity of diverting the attention of the jailer from her while she delivered the necessary instruments to Shepherd to assist him in his contemplated escape. Subsequent visits enabled Jack to approach the wicket and, by constant filing, he succeeded in placing one of the spikes in such a position as that it could be easily wrenched off. 
On the evening on which the warrant for his execution arrived, Mrs Maggot, who was an immensely powerful woman, and Bess going to visit him, he broke off the spike while the keepers were employed in drinking in the lodge, and, thrusting his head and shoulders through the aperture, the women pulled him down and smuggled him through the outer room in which the jailers were indulging themselves into the street. This taste of his second escape was sweet. One night Jack was walking along Flink Street where he saw an opportunity too good to miss. He had seen a watchmaker's shop attended by only a boy. Shepherd stuck his hand through the window and stole three watches and made his escape. He headed up to Finchley in order to stay low. The jailers of Newgate, after gaining information of his retreat to Finchley, caught up with him and took Shepherd into custody back to the stone jug, jug being a word used for jail. Jack Shepherd was put into a strong room known as the castle. He was handcuffed, loaded with a pair of irons and chained to a staple fixed in the floor. He was only a short man, 5'4", and of a light build. The irons and castle set up must have looked a tad over the top, but Shepherd had escaped before and the authorities were taking no chances of it happening again. Shepherd was visited by a large number of the public, people of all ranks. It's said that many of them left making him a present of money and this enabled him to obtain those little luxuries which weren't provided by the authorities. On the 14th of October, the sessions began at the Old Bailey. The keepers were attending the court. Jack was left to his own devices for longer than usual. His plan of action had already been activated. At about 2pm the previous day, one of the keepers had brought Shepherd his dinner. After having carefully examined his irons and found them to be secure, he left. Shepherd now attempted his second escape from Newgate Prison. And it's really this final escape which Jack Shepherd goes down in history. So what happens? So in the show notes, I've added uh, an illustration of uh, exactly what he did. But let's just uh, paint the picture with our words. So Jack Shepherd has handcuffs and footlocks and a and his padlocks to the ground in this castle in Newgate Prison. Uh, he f- manages with this amount, extra amount of time that he's got now to uh, file his way out of the chains connecting him to the floor. And then don't forget, he's a, he's a tiny bloke. So he is able to wriggle his way up the chimney in this room called the castle. And he finds an iron bar there. And he's able to break into the fireplace of the next room and he wiggles down that and he enters that room and that's called the red room and he opens the lock to the red room and in from the red room he enters the chapel and that's the chapel that he's been spending quite a lot of time at recently hmm i wonder why and he's able to burst open this chapel and go into another passageway and then finally 
he gets over a wall um, and he walks along the rooftops and then down a staircase off that roof of a Turner's house and then into the street. He hid in a cowshed for a few days whilst he tried to remove his irons. Finally, after telling a shoemaker a tall tale, he was now free. He stayed at a public house of little trade in Rupert Street for a few weeks, living off the money the members of public had given him while in Newgate. Instead of leaving the country, which seemed the only sensible action left, Jack was itching for some company and went out drinking. On the 31st of October, he dined with two women at a public house in Newgate Street, a stone's throw from the prison. In the evening, he went to his old stomping ground to a public house in Maypole Alley, Clare Market. Shepherd sent for his mother and treated her with brandy. She begged him to leave the country. He promised to do so. But he was too inebriated to do anything sensible. He wandered about from public house to public house in the neighbourhood till near midnight when he was apprehended after an alehouse boy reported a sighting of him. When taken into custody, Shepherd was quite senseless and was taken to Newgate in a coach. His fame had increased by his recent exploits. He was visited by many persons of distinction to whom he gave a recital of his events, also expressing hope of a royal pardon. Having been already convicted, another trial wasn't required. On the 10th of November, he was carried to the bar of the Court of the King's Bench, when a record for his conviction having been read and an affidavit made that it was the same person alluded to in it, Mr Justice Powis confirmed the sentence of death on him and ruled for his execution to be on the following Monday. He subsequently regularly attended chapel in the jail and behaved there with apparent decency. All his hopes were still fixed upon his being pardoned. Even when the day of execution arrived, he did not appear to have given over to all expectations of eluding justice, for Shepherd had another plan. This one involved a penknife in his pocket. When the procession came opposite Little Turnstile, he would have cut the cord that bound his arms and jump off the course and into the crowd and through a narrow passage where the sheriff's officers could not follow on horseback. But before Shepherd left the press yard, Officer Watson searched Shepherd's pockets and found the penknife. No matter, Shepherd had a plan B. If he had been hanged, he wanted his friends to put him into a warm bed as soon as he could be cut down and to try to open a vein, which he had been told would restore him to life. On the scaffold at Tyburn, he confessed to the two robberies for which he had been tried. On 16th of November 1724, a 23-year-old Jack Shepherd was hanged. This was a time before the long drop was used. Hanging was, in effect, strangling to death. It's noted that Jack Shepherd died with difficulty, and it must have been a slow way to go. 
When he was cut down, his body was taken to a public house in Longacre. He couldn't be revived. Later that evening, he was buried in the churchyard of St Martin's in the Fields. By the time of his death, Shepherd's escapades had earned him celebrity status among Londoners, and he inspired popular plays, prints and ballads. For a considerable time, he was the principal subject of conversation in all ranks of society. Histories of his life issued from the press in a variety of forms. A pantomimic entertainment was brought forward at Drury Lane Theatre called Harlequin Shepherd, wherein his adventures, prison breaks and other extraordinary escapes were represented. The Prison Breaker, a dramatic farce of three acts, was published, a part of it with songs, catches and glees added with performed at Bartholomew's Fair under the title of The Quaker's Opera. Dozens of songs and glees referred to his prowess and clergymen preached sermons about him. Sir James Thornhill, the celebrated painter who decorated the dome of St Paul's Cathedral and the painted hall in Greenwich, painted his portrait, from which engravings in Mezzo Tinto were made. An unnamed contemporary poet wrote the following lines. Thornhill, tis thine to gild with fame the obscure and raise the humble name. To make the form elude the grave And shepherd from oblivion save. Though life in vain the wretch implores An exile on the farthest shores Thy pencil brings a kind reprieve And bids the dying robber live. This piece to latest time shall stand and show the wonders of thy hand. Thus former masters graced their name, and gave egregious robbers fame. Apelles Alexander drew, Caesar is to Aurelius due, Cromwell in Lely's works doth shine, and Shepherd, Thornhill lives in thine. Even though Jack Shepherd may have enjoyed knowing his life was being immortalised in art and literature, I think maybe he would have preferred knowing that the Black Jack pub on Portugal Street became known as the Jump, from when Jack himself had to jump out of a first floor window in that pub to escape his pursuers, the Thief Takers. And then a club known as the Honourable Society of Jackers met there until 1816. And what happened to Jonathan Wilde, thief and thief-taker? Well, I think I'll leave that one for another day. That's all for now. I'll see you next time.